Thanks, Jerry. Um, first of all, guys, um, I just wanted to uh, ask all you, how you all are doing today. How are you guys doing today? Good? Awesome. I feel like, man, there's like everything going on today. We got Christmas decorations, we got candles, we got baptism, we got communion. I feel it's like I feel like it's like a Sunday on steroids. So good stuff, good stuff. Um, yeah, and I really just wanted to thank uh, just Nick and Joey for uh, taking the time to really pour into me and invest in me. Um, and yeah, and I, I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to preach in front of you guys. It's just been such an honor and a blessing uh, to prepare for this. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to, to giving this message to you guys. Um, and if you guys, for any reason, don't like what I have to say, I have some tomatoes in the back of your guest throat. Um, anyways. All right, so um, the title of today's message is Forever Clean, God's Grace in the Midst of Our Deepest Shame. So today uh, I'm going to be presenting a sermon on Psalm chapter 51, and uh, this is one of the heaviest passages in all of Scripture, but I think it also presents one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in all of Scripture as well. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to just introduce myself real quick. Um, like Joey said, my name is uh, Joseph. I've been coming to uh, this church, Mercy Hill, uh, with my beautiful wife, Rebecca, uh, since 2021, um, and I became a member last year. Uh, I'm 22 years old. I'm a recent college graduate from San Jose State. Do we have any SGSU grads in the room at all? Okay, we got a few. All right, let's go. All right, go Spartans. Um, so I, I recently graduated from SJSU, uh, but I actually uh, took a pretty dramatic, uh, pretty dramatically changed the course of my life. And right now I'm a carpenter at a company called Tough Shed. So that's that's a story for another time. Um, so the reason why I chose this passage today is because, first of all, um, this has easily been one of the most life-changing passages in all of Scripture for me. This, this passage totally changed the way that I saw God. Even though I grew up in church, for the longest time, I viewed him as a cold and distant deity and someone that I had to grind all day for to please. I believe that God used this passage that we're about to read today to, pl to flip that paradigm upside down. And I believe that he can do it for you this morning as well. So, like I said, today we're going to be diving into Psalm chapter chapter 51, and um, this passage, you know, describes, um, uh, you know, uh, the aftermath of David's sin with Bathsheba, and just, just a, a little bit of like a parental advisory, um, you know, just a heads up, you know, this psalm is going to deal with some weighty topics like murder and adultery, and I'm aware that, you know, maybe uh, for, for some younger uh, people in the room, uh, that, that might be a little bit too much to handle. So if you feel, you know, just like uncomfortable at any point, you know, feel free to step out or whatever. That's, that's totally all right. So uh, before we read, uh, I just want to give you guys some context. So Psalm 51 is a written record in the Old Testament book of the Psalms. Um, it's a song from ancient Israel's greatest monarch, King David. So the Bible consistently describes David as a man after God's own heart, someone who loves God and was willing to put his life on the line for him. David's life was quite victorious for a long time. He slayed giant warriors, he conquered kingdoms, and he crafted some of humanity's most cherished poetry. He also led one of the most morally upright lives anyone at the time had ever seen. That was until everything changed one sleepy afternoon. David wrote this song when he was more rock bottom than a chihuahua on the 4th of July. <laughs> According to a historical account in the book of 2 Samuel, David, after a successful military campaign, 
um, decided to stay home for a little while. Um, in Second uh, Samuel uh, 11 and 12, it mentions how the springtime was the time that kings went out to battle. But David, instead of going out to battle with his men, decided to, to take a little staycation. So David, while he was chilling out at his house, um, the passage in 2 Samuel says that he arose from his couch late in the afternoon. Um, and he essentially walked out onto his porch and his porch, uh, you know, like he was he was he was kind of on the top of the city. His porch oversaw the whole city and he saw a woman bathing um, and, you know, in, in, in lustful desire for her. He, he, he drew her into his house. He slept with her. He you know cheated on his spouse, um, you know, committed adultery with her. And then eventually, you know, he got her pregnant. And in the aftermath of that, um, after uh, finding out that uh, David got her pregnant, uh, to cover up what he had done, he used his authority as a king to have Bathsheba's husband killed. And after executing Uriah, who happened to be one of David's most faithful men, David quickly married Bathsheba in a plot to make it uh, look like she had conceived the baby after the death of her husband. Uh, David, he wanted to cover up the whole plot. And his plan was working until the prophet Nathan confronted him. And David's eyes in that moment the eyes of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were open. So let's turn to Psalm chapter 51 to get a firsthand glimpse to see what was going on in David's mind in that very moment. All right, so Psalm chapter 51, um, if you don't know where that is, feel free to use the table of contents. Um, Psalm chapter 51, verse 1. So the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, but the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my, my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, Burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. 
Let's pray, guys. Lord, God, I just want to thank you. God, thank you for giving us this psalm, Lord. God, thank you that this psalm is like, it's like healing ointment for a broken soul, God. Lord, I pray that today, Lord, if anyone in this room uh, can resonate with the words of David, if anyone here feels like they've been confronted for some life-altering sin, or maybe they're, they're even hiding something from you that they don't uh, uh, feel courageous enough to bring to you, God, I pray that this passage would just uh, convict them, uh, but then it would also just draw them to your throne of grace, God. Lord, I pray that today uh, you would just uh, give me the right words to say, God. I pray that if anything I say isn't uh, helpful or uplifting uh, to the congregation, God, that they would just completely forget forget about all of that um, and just remember uh, what, what, what's true, God. Father, we love you. We just pray that you would be glorified today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. David was not the first to struggle with a troubled conscience. 2,500 years after David, another man found himself in a very similar situation, uh, though some of the details are a little different. This man had an absolutely wrecked conscience after staring into his own failures. In the 1500s, there lived a German monk who, like David, was looked at as a relatively decent dude in the sight of those around him. This man was born into a poor family, but worked his way through school to receive an education in law and philosophy. As a religious man, he had an intense desire to know God, but found his studies insufficient to fulfill that desire. One day, as he was returning home from a visit to, to his parents during a rainstorm, a bolt of lightning, boom, pounded the ground next to him. This bolt of lightning knocked him to his feet throwing him into a ditch. He heard the sky boom with thunder and this man blacked out. Taking this to be the judgment of God, he, he, he screamed at the heavens and he vowed to become a monk if he survived. Fearing, uh, <laughs> and uh, if there was one thing that the Catholic church was good at in this time period, it was getting people to fear God. And fearing that he would eventually end up in hell or purgatory if he didn't change his ways, this guy became a monk in an Augustinian monastery. While at the monastery, he denied himself and engaged in repetitive confession to such a degree that his fellow monks literally pulled him aside and said, dude, calm down. Don't come to us unless you've literally murdered someone. Please calm down. Um, he would pray for six hours a day he would uh, perform the mass uh, on a regular basis. And even though this man was held in high regard, both academically and religiously, he still could not find freedom from his seared conscience. While intensely studying the Bible, he was confronted with the reality that he was more sinful than he had ever thought. He studied and sang hymns about the holiness of God every day and saw that his own evil deeds, and he could not understand how a holy God could ever want anything to do with him. This man's name was Martin Luther. He spoke the following words about this period in his life. He said, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter, and made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. Crazy. I want to ask you today, 
Does that describe you this morning? Can you resonate with that this morning? And the main idea of our text and the question that, that I, I really want to answer today is this. What do you do when you've made an absolute train wreck of your life? How do you cleanse a heart that refuses to be clean? How do you heal a hopelessly numb conscience? In other words, how do we get right with the holy God when we know that we've deeply wronged him? And the answer that I hope to flesh out through today's message is this. Through the gospel, we have the ability to get honest with God about all our sins, even our worst ones. Knowing that when we repent, Jesus is ready and eager to wash us clean and restore us back to him again. In other words, it's not too late to lay our, sh our shame at Christ's feet, because even our most scandalous sins are not too big for the grace of God. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to dive into this text verse by verse. We're going to reflect on it for a little while, and we're going to talk about how it applies to our lives. And uh, just as a little bonus, I'm going to weave in um, part of my testimony. Um, so that should be fun. All right, so um, <laughs> so let's uh, let's go ahead and dive into this text. Uh, let's, let's jump into verse one. It says, um, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So big picture, um, these two verses are essentially David appealing to God's character. David knew on a very deep level that God's mercy and his character were deeply entwined with each other. His mercy grew out of his character. A word that stood out to me as I was studying this uh, was the word steadfast love. I feel like that's not really a word that we use too much in our culture today. And so I was wondering, okay, like what, what does this word mean? So steadfast love, it comes from a Hebrew word hesed, uh, which basically, basically means undeserved adoration or unmerited favor. Hesed is the kind of love that doesn't leave when things get hard. Um, hesed is the kind of love that stays. Another word that stood out to me was the word blot. Like, like I don't think I've ever heard someone use the word blot in a normal conversation. So <laughs> we're going to define it today. So um, blot comes from a Hebrew word that literally, uh, it, it means to wipe away or erase. So David here was asking God to literally erase the record of his sins. David was asking God to give, to give him a clean slate. And I think it's really interesting that David was not asking God to help him blot out his own sins, because that's what religion says. David asked God directly to blot his sins away. So he, he, he understood that God was the one that blots out sins, not us. And finally, uh, abundant mercy. Um, you know, why, why, is that, why is that adjective thrown in there, abundant? I think this, this, this communicates the reality that God is not stingy with his mercy. Like, David knew that when he came to God after blowing it all, God was not going to cross his arms and roll his eyes and be like, dude, you came to me like 12 times yesterday, bro. Come on. Um, God doesn't, God doesn't, you know, have a, have a quota on, uh, on how much mercy he can give us. It's, it's completely abundant. In verse two, uh, we see the word thorough. David asks God to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity. And this basically means, uh, it's a Hebrew word that literally means multiply to wash me. 
And this means that David wanted a thorough washing. He wanted a deep cleansing, not a surface level one. David knew that surface level behavior modification could never change him. Surface level behavior modification could never clean his conscience. Only a deep cleansing that came from God could. All right, so let's, uh, let's, let's skip ahead to verses 3 and 4. Uh, these verses describe David getting real with God. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Who here has ever tried to hold a beach ball underwater? Has anyone tried to do that before? Okay, how long did that last? Like, how long did you hold it underwater for? Maybe like a few seconds, maybe if you're really crazy, maybe a minute. Okay, this is something I can guarantee you. I can guarantee you that no inflated beach ball put under a municipal swimming pool more than five minutes ago is still under underwater as we speak. Um, Lewis uh, Sperry Schaefer said, it may be a secret sin on earth, but it is open scandal in heaven. This basically communicates the reality that the truth always comes to the surface. In, uh, in uh, 2 Samuel, we see that David hid his sin for at least nine months. And we know that that's the case because um, David wasn't exposed by the prophet Nathan until his baby had been born. So David held such a massive secret to himself for nine months. Imagine just having adultery and murder looming on your mind for that long. Imagine what that would do to a person psychologically. In Psalm 32, three through five, uh, David talks about his bones literally wasting away because he kept silent. And this is very likely referring to the events leading up to Psalm 51. David got to the point when he was done covering up his sin. The beach wall had come up. And I want to ask you today, have you gotten to that point yet? All right, verse four. It talks about, um, uh, this is actually just kind of an interesting theological thing, but um, David talks about uh, how, like, against God only had he sinned. And as I was, I was reading that, I was like, come on, David. Like, dude, what the heck? Like, you, you, you murdered Uriah, you know, you, you slept with Bathsheba, you know, you defiled your whole nation. How can you say that you only sinned against God? And as I was kind of meditating on this, um, I kind of realized, like, hey, at the end of the day, um, we plead for mercy from the ones to whom we're accountable to. So, like, if, uh, you know, if we break the law and we have to stand in front of a judge, we plead from the judge. Um, we don't necessarily, you know, plead from our fellow citizens for, uh, you know, forgiveness or absolution, uh, or even from the victims necessarily. We plead from the judge. So Uriah and Bathsheba were valuable in God's eyes. So any sin that David could commit against them were ultimately committed against their maker, which is God. So David submitted to the reality that what he did was evil in God's eyes. There was no getting defensive. There was no sugarcoating. He was just being real. What is justified in your words and blameless in your judgment mean? So this means that God was not exposing David for no reason. The whole ordeal 
of him, you know, getting exposed and whatnot was not God being unfair. He disciplined David because he actually did something wrong, and David acknowledged that. All right, let's uh, jump ahead to verses 5 and 6. These verses communicate uh, David realizing that he could not escape from his sinful nature. In verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What does brought forth in iniquity mean? You know, does that mean that, you know, like he was conceived out of like wedlock or something? Um, Not necessarily. This basically means, excuse me, that David was thrust into a sinful nature that he could not escape from on the very day of his conception. Some theologians say that um, the the concept of original sin uh, and the concept of, you know, total depravity is one of the most empirically verifiable doctrines of the Christian faith. Literally, all you have to do is scroll through the news for more than five minutes to realize that it's true. And there's not only evil in the world out there, outside of these four walls, but there's evil in every single one of us. We can't escape from it. All of us are infected by the curse uh, of the fall. So David, you know, he realized that um, this was his case and he realized that the antidote uh, described in verse six is this. He says, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Okay, what is truth in the inward being? Basically, this is a deep inward change that results in genuine integrity. So David realized that the only, uh, the only solution to the curse of sin is a deep inward change that came from God himself through the Holy Spirit. David realized that. Now, what is wisdom in the secret heart? So basically, David desired God to give him a heart that wanted that which was good, true, and beautiful. And he realized that only God could produce this change inside of him. All right, so jumping to uh, verses 7 through 9. Um, these describe David pleading with God to clean him. Uh, verse 7 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Guys, at the end of the day, sin makes us dirty, but grace makes us clean. When God forgives us, he makes our conscience and our heart as white as snow. I have a question for you guys. Did anyone here grow up in an area where it actually got cold enough to like snow in the winter? Okay, okay, maybe a few people. Um, Have any of you guys like wondered why? I I know this is going to sound like a stupid question, but has anyone wondered why snow is white? Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I've wondered that. I've wondered why that is because ice is clear, water is clear. Why is snow white? So, um, so I did some some research on uh, tr- trusty Google, and um, I found out that snow is white because it reflects the rays of the sun. So, uh, there's all sorts of you know physics and science behind it. I won't get into that, um, but basically, when the sun hits all the snowflakes, you know the light bounces around all over the place. Uh, and then eventually what comes back to us is this pure, radiant, white light. So we see that snow gets its color by reflecting a light that's not its own. And our hearts, like snow, become pure 
because the love of God reflects off our hearts in a pure, radiant beam of light. Isn't that crazy? So I want to talk about hyssop real quick. Does anyone know what hyssop is? Anyone ever heard of that? Okay, maybe a few people. All right, so the original readers of this psalm would have understood hyssop as a medicinal herb that was used in purification rituals. So a good, uh, there's examples of this all throughout the Old Testament, but uh, one that I want to mention is uh, in Exodus. This is actually one of the first times that hyssop is mentioned. Um, in Exodus uh, 12, 22, we essentially see um, uh, the people of Israel, you know, they're stuck in Egypt. God's about to bring them out of Egypt. And um, what God commands them to do is to take this hyssop branch, dip it in uh, the, the blood of uh, pure and undefiled lamb, and put it over the doorposts of their house. And once they did this, the angel of death would pass over them. So um, that's, that's like a pretty uh, good example of hyssop. And we also see it in the New Testament as well. But I won't get into that right now. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. All right. So verse 8. How can you hear joy and gladness? What does that mean? I think uh, as I was studying this, what, what, the conclusion that I came to was a forgiven man or woman can't help but rejoice. When I look at the story of the woman at the well, you know, when she eventually comes to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah that she had always been waiting for, and that he was the one that had the power and the ability to redeem her, she literally drops everything. She drops everything and she went into her town and she couldn't help but rejoice. She couldn't help but tell everyone around her. That's kind of what I think of when I think of this. Verse 9, what does it mean for God to hide his face from our sins? Well, um, God, you know, is all-knowing. He's omnipotent. It's not like he's oblivious to, to our sins, but really what this means is that he chooses to forget to forget about them. And, you know, in other words, like, when he hides his face from our sins, they're literally not relevant in the courtroom of heaven anymore. So it's like, if you are in Christ, your past sins, your present sins, that has all been washed away by the blood of Christ, and they are not relevant in the courtroom of heaven anymore. God has hidden his face from them. What a beautiful reality. This, I think, this, I think ties in beautifully to the fact that we are the righteousness of Christ. In the New Testament, it says that our righteousness is hidden with Christ in heaven. You know, like our lives are literally hidden with him. That's absolutely incredible. All right. Um, verses 10 through 11, um, they say, Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So verse 10, the word create. This is crazy. It actually comes from the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 1.1, which described God creating the world out of nothing. So David was asking God to create a clean heart in him in the same way that, he, that God created the world out of nothing. It was a miracle of God. What's a right spirit? What does that mean? So a right spirit basically means a steadfast spirit, one that's able to resist evil on a daily basis. And honestly, guys, like verse 10, this has been a verse that I've literally had to pray over my life every day for like the last eight years. This is a verse that I've clung onto so tightly um, for honestly uh, many different reasons, but this is the big one. Like 
God not only washes us clean, but he supplies us with the ability to resist evil on a daily basis. And guys, we don't have to produce this on our own. Like what a what a comforting, comforting reality to say to art. All right, verse 11, it says, cast me not away from your presence. David did not want distance from God. He knew that being in God's presence was the only thing that would sustain him in the long run. All right, we're going to go through the rest of these verses pretty quickly. Um, verses 12 through 13, um, these basically describe what happens in the aftermath of forgiveness. And, you know, verse 12, uh, David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice he doesn't say restore to me salvation uh, because, you know, like I believe that if we're already saved, like if we're genuinely saved, a season of backsliding can't steal salvation from us, but it can steal the joy of salvation. And guys, believe it or not, God wants you to have joy in knowing him. Like he, he, he wants that for you. And guys, this is crazy, but David the same guy who murdered and committed adultery can teach sinners of God's grace. Isn't that insane? You see, God redeems us to be a beacon of hope to our fellow sinners. And if God can save David, he can save anyone. I can, I can almost guarantee you that because of David's testimony, thousands, if not millions of broken prodigals have returned to God. All right, verses, verses uh, 14 through 17, this describes, you know, what God wants out of us. Um, and I think uh, just the main, main verse I want to focus on here is um, verse 16, where it says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And then verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Excuse me. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Oftentimes, um, especially, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, we can start to equate, um, you know, good, you know, Christian stuff with nearness with God. You know, we can say like, oh, man, you know, like I, I read the word, you know, like every day this week, you know, I, I listen to worship music, you know, like I evangelize like, to all my coworkers, you know, I'm good with God. But then when we don't do those things, we're just like, oh, man, you know, like God hates me right now. Um, the thing <laughs> is, is like God does not just want surface level behavior he wants at the end of the day what he wants the most is you he wants your heart and what god is looking for in a person is a broken spirit as a sacrifice what does that mean he's looking for someone that's willing to look to him in humble uh submission and, and, and look to him in um in hope believing that he is the only one who can sustain them and free them like really God is, is looking for someone that, that, that wants him. And scripture gives us many promises that God will not despise this kind of person. God will not despise a person who sees their brokenness and sees their need for him. All right, super quick. Last two verses, verses 18 and 19. Uh, these basically describe um, not only the personal redemption of David, but also the national redemption of Israel. Um, Basically, David is asking God to restore what sin took from his nation because of his sin. And all of our sins, believe it or not, they have a ripple effect. Even the sins we think are harmless, they affect future generations. They affect our communities. They affect other people. And David uh, realizes that, man, God uh, can redeem um, 
even even the, the craziest ripples, you know, caused by sin. He believed that God could do that. All right, guys, we have just exegeted a whole chapter of scripture. Um, great job, guys. Um, thanks for hanging with me. Now what we're going to do um, is reflect on these passages and see how they lead to the cross. So at the end of the day, through this passage, we can infer seven different things. So the first thing that we can infer is that David's fall into sin is a universal problem. Number two, sin makes us guilty before holy God because all sin is ultimately against him at the end of the day. Number three, we deserve justice and wrath from God because of our sins. If this were not the case, there would be no reason for David to plead for mercy from God. Number four, religious ritual, superstition, or trying harder can never cover sin. Number five, we need forgiveness. Number six, for forgiveness to happen, God himself needs to cover our guilt. And finally, number seven, David knew that once God forgave him, he would be brought back into relational nearness with him again, and his sins would be forever washed away. Little did King David know, it was through his mistress Bathsheba that the Messiah would be born. It was through this Messiah that every longing of David's crushed heart would be answered. So how does this Messiah fulfill every longing of not only David's heart, but yours and mine too? Well, first, Jesus is the only man to be born as a human and yet not be infected by the curse of sin. First Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Number two, we all sin against Jesus every time we do evil, and yet he was the one who bled for our forgiveness. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, not while we were righteous, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number three, Jesus did what religion or our best efforts can never do. He paid for our sins with his own body as a living sacrifice to God. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus is the one who blots out our sins. 1 John 1.19 gives us this promise. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guys, I think it's insane that the son of David pays for David's sin. Isn't that incredible? The son of David pays for David's sin. And guys, Jesus left our shame in the grave when he rose from the dead, which honestly is a historical fact, like the, the evidence is overwhelming. He forever defeated our sins and gave us a new record. He gave us a clean and perfect record. So if you want to know like where the old you lies, it's dead in that grave with Jesus 2000 years ago. That's where the old you lies and the new you is Christ living inside of you. Jesus he makes, our, he makes our scarlet sins white as snow. First John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us 
from all of our sins. And guys, because Jesus resurrected, we can walk in the newness of life. It's insane. And then one last thing. This is, this is honestly insane. Guys, Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, he drank sour wine with a hyssop branch attached. So check this out. As they, uh, as G, you know, as Jesus, the, the spotless lamb of God, the lamb of God who was slain for our sins, as he was hanging there on the cross, he sits from the hyssop branch forever purifying us that therefore anyone who looks to him for salvation, anyone who looks to him for forgiveness will have their sins passed over by God, just like in Exodus. The son of David pays for David's sin because Jesus resurrected, man, our lives are so secure in him. So real quick, I want to talk about how this applies to us. Um, if you look around, you know, it's Christmas time. Everyone loves Christmas. You know, um, you know, Christmas reminds us of all sorts of things. Um, you know, uh, in centuries past, you know, Christmas used to be, you know, centered on Jesus. But, you know, unfortunately, it's been more about, you know, like Black Friday and gifts and shopping and all that stuff. Um, and I think today, you know, we really latch on to the Santa Claus gospel, um, you know, which is which is this, you know, naughty kids get coal, nice kids get presents. How simple is that? However, in the gospel, we are all naughty kids that deserve coal. However, yet God, being a loving father, has given us a gift worth more than gold. He's given spoiled brats something worth more than the finest gift a father can give his son. Now, I want to I return back to my man, Martin Luther. Um, we kind of left off on a pretty dismal point in his life. Um, I promise you he can stay like that. So basically what happened was, you know, as he was studying the scripture, as he was doing all these religious things, he saw that his own good deeds can never bring him back to God. His own good deeds can never bridge the gap between him and God. And eventually, uh, as he was reading uh, uh, passages uh, in Psalms and a lot of Paul's letters, um, uh, Martin Luther eventually stumbled on this passage that said, um, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And Martin Luther, he used to hate that passage because he interpreted it to say that, you know, through the gospel, we see that God is, you know, just in punishing sinners. But eventually the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see that, like, oh my gosh, the righteousness of God means something way different. Like the righteousness of God means that through the gospel, we get God's perfect record imputed to us. Like we get the perfect record of Christ himself imputed to us as a free gift to receive by faith. And then eventually when Martin Luther discovered this, he said that the very thing that had made him hate God made him love God. So it's pretty incredible. Martin Luther, as a result of this, um, he, he eventually uh, came to say that um, it was at this point in life that he felt that the, the, the gates of paradise swung wide open to him. And he opened and he, he walked in to heaven uh, through the door of Christ. And, you know, he eventually, if you know his story, he eventually went on to start the Protestant uh, Reformation. And um, it was, you know, through his life and through his work that, um, you know, uh, the, the, whole, the whole world was changed, basically. Um, now, I want to uh, kind of switch gears a little bit, and I want to uh, get a little personal, um, and I want to talk about 
one thing in our world today that creates shame for a lot of people, and I'm going to get very specific. Um, one thing that creates you know shame and brokenness and emptiness today, especially among young men, is pornography addiction. According to some studies, nearly 70% of of teen guys and nearly 40% of teen girls have watched pornography at some point in their lives. And guys, at one point I was a part of that statistic. I grew up in a Christian household. Um, you know, I, I, I was taught the gospel from a young age, but I was a very self-righteous person. Um, I lived a double life for a long time. Um, in fact, you know, when I was in school, I used to get into debates, you know, with my friends about the existence of God and I try to, you know, convert them and stuff. But reality my heart was just as dead as theirs i never tasted the grace of god and it was in this kind of self-righteous season uh, that i was exposed uh, to pornography and i just dove head first uh, because uh, it, it to me it, it was an escape uh, from reality and uh, i felt no remorse for the longest time um, and uh, eventually what happened uh, was God in his grace, you know, opened my eyes to the brokenness of what I was doing, the sin and the wretchedness of what I was doing. And I started to feel convicted. Um, and it was at this point um, that, you know, I gave my life to Christ and, you know, I surrendered my life to him. But there was one thing that I couldn't understand. I could not kick this addiction. I tried super hard, but I was chained. I was chained to this thing that I wanted to get free from. So what I did was I turned to legalism, like Martin Luther, to wipe, wipe away my slate. I would say, you know, I'd be constantly confessing my sin to God. I would say repetitive, superstitious prayers. I would make grand promises to God, you know, essentially saying that if I failed, you know, he, he, he could punish me. I would even punish myself for failing, but I could not find any freedom. However, it was when I finally rediscovered the gospel after four years of struggle, I found freedom and hope. When I realized that Christ took all my shame on the cross and that he was my righteousness, not my good deeds, it finally led to freedom. This, this freedom, this newfound freedom liberated me to share my struggles uh, with a, uh, a close uh, Christian friend of mine who I found out also struggled with the same thing. I thought that I was the only one. After four years of struggle, God finally freed me uh, from addiction to pornography. And by God's grace, I've been free for almost five years. Glory to God. And uh, just as kind of, just the way that God kind of brought this full circle, um, you know, when I was addicted to that stuff, you know, like it warped everything about my mind. You know, I, I couldn't even, you know, look at a woman in a pure way. And then God, he took that brokenness and he, he led me into a pure marriage. And actually like Becca and I, our first kiss was on our wedding day. And like, the reason why I mentioned this is that if God can redeem me, he can redeem anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. So, um, and just like my last minute or so, um, I just want to invite you guys to, to make this gospel message real for you. If there's any uh, people in here who would call themselves a Christian, maybe, you know, on paper, but, you know, uh, you know, maybe when you fill out the government census, you mark the Christian box, but that's about it. Um, you know, I would challenge you to really reconsider um, who Jesus is, reconsider the gospel message, and get real with God, because scripture is very honest about this, that if we don't repent, man, like, like God is just and you don't want to face the justice of God. 
for believers who are struggling in this area of sexual sin, man, in love, I would just encourage you, look to the empty tomb. The old you is dead, the new you is risen with Christ. You are one with Christ. You were confirmed as a child of God and nothing can pluck you from his hand. When you make a mistake, that doesn't mean you are a mistake. Jesus loves you despite all the times you've sinned against him. God left the 99 other sheep to come and find you, the one lost sheep. The father will never run away from you, no matter how broken you are. So I'd encourage you, ask God to search your heart and show you where you're coddling sin in your life. Bring your sins to the light by telling another believer about what you're struggling with. And for believers who maybe are not struggling uh, with this kind of sin, um, or maybe you've, you've conquered it in the past, this is what I would encourage you with. Openly share your testimony with people who are struggling in this area. Because many people don't share their struggles in this area because they think they're alone, and you can change that. Your vulnerability will lead to honesty and other people. For uh, If there are any people in here that maybe, you know, maybe you got dragged into church, maybe someone passed you an invite card and like you don't even know, you, you didn't even know what you were getting yourself into today. Um, you know, I would encourage you like, man, like really um, take these words to heart, really, t- uh, really take Jesus into consideration. You know, ask, you know, ask God, like, man, God, like if you're real, open my eyes to this, show me if this is true. And I'll, tr- you know, I'll challenge you, you know, to, to believe in Jesus because he's calling you by name. And finally, If there are any people in this room who maybe wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but maybe for some reason these words are resonating with you like like no other words have, or maybe, you know, there's something that rings true about these words to you, I would say, man, God is calling you by name. He knows you. He knows every single hair on your head. He knows everything that you hide. You're made in his image. Place your hope in Jesus to cleanse you from your sins. He promises to make your heart white as snow and adopt you as his own. He will give you an inheritance that cannot be stripped away. And that's a promise. And um, let's end on that. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for your never-ending steadfast love. Thank you that your love is the kind of love that washes sinners clean, God. You restore our broken consciences. You give us strength to resist evil every day. And our righteousness is hidden in heaven with you. God, I pray that everyone here would just take these words to heart, God. And I pray that if anyone is struggling with a, with a seared conscience, they would find freedom in Jesus today. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for Christmas, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.